Support for MindShift comes from Landmark College. Its annual Summer Institute for Educators takes place June 25th through 27th. Registration is now open at landmark.edu slash LCSI. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, MindShift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Welcome to the MindShift Podcast, where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I'm Ki Sung. And I'm Nima Gobier. Ask any parent about their day, and they'll say they're doing a million and one things. Dropping kids off at school, picking up groceries, stopping by the laundromat, maybe taking a kid to an appointment. If you're imagining a low-income parent, they're doing those same errands, but they might also be signing up for food stamps, talking to caseworkers, going to GED classes, sometimes all without a car. Parents are pulled in so many directions. It'd be so much easier if all the things they needed to take care of their families were in one spot. Today, we're going to hear from two schools in San Francisco who transformed into community schools in order to provide essentials like food, healthcare, and shelter to their students. It's a model that not only supports families, but also relieves the stress put on teachers. Dr. Angela Diaz explains how the community school model works. In a community school, is an approach where you bring the resources that you think children and youth need and family need to really be successful. And you bring all those resources within the school building. Angela worked about health clinics at some of the first community schools in New York City. She says parents are much more likely to use resources when they are located at or near schools. It's hard for people to be going, you know, here for social services, there for school, there for mental health. It it will not happen. And if you have things separate, they are less likely to be gotten. The beauty about having it all together is that the the child or the youth may actually get it. Schools have always been a safety net for families who need extra support. Think about free and reduced lunches, after-school programs, and buses. But at a community school, a child can also see a therapist, get a physical, and receive one-on-one tutoring, all while at school, a place they're required to go by law. And community schools offer services for the whole family, like a health clinic, which can save parents precious time. If a child has asthma, every time they get an asthma attack, they have to leave the school. The parents have to leave their work. So they lose the the income for whatever day they are out. And the child is missing school. Rarely will they go back that day to school. One study in Los Angeles found student attendance increased by five days a year when they had doctor's offices located at the school. So Nima, when we say community school, we just mean the school provides more services than academics. Like, could they have a laundromat? 
Yep. Dental clinic? Sure. What about a food pantry? You betcha. There are over 8,000 community schools across the U.S., and each one is different. They can have any combination of those services. Schools find organizations that offer what they need and partner with them to get access to professionals and funding. You know, a partner can be almost anybody. This is Abe Fernandez. He works with community schools all over the country, so they're set up for sustainable success. He also worked with Angela in New York. Abe says some of the best partners are organizations already working in the same neighborhood as the school. They bring the credibility, some trust, in some cases, the cultural uh, background and linguistic backgrounds of the kids who are being served. Whose job is it to identify partners and organize all these services? That's where the community school coordinators come in. This is a full-time person who's dedicated to that school. They're doing things like brokering new relationships with partners in the community, pulling together data to help understand w- ways in which we are having success and where there are some, still some gaps and where we're improving and learning. The coordinator also works with families to find out what they need. Buena Vista Horace Mann is a community school located in the Mission District of San Francisco. It's a lively neighborhood known for its Latino roots, but it's rapidly gentrifying. Taquerias and corner grocers are giving way to expensive wine bars and boutiques. Nestled in the middle of all of this is BBHM as it's known, a K through eight Spanish immersion school. The dual language program attracts white parents who want their kids to grow up speaking another language, as well as Spanish speakers who want their kids to learn in both languages. We're a school with like a massive newcomer community that was, you know, in San Francisco trying to figure out their way and navigate. Nicholas Chandler is BBHM's community school coordinator. He partners with organizations to get low-income families and those recently arrived in the U.S. the essentials. Food, health care, and mental health services. Building relationships with the food bank to make sure that the basic needs of having food weekly were something that we were responsive to. Looking and partnering with community mental health agencies. Maybe this sounds like too much, that food and healthcare aren't a school's job, but that's not how Nick sees it. I know a student that walks in the door hungry, the, the state of that brain is not going to absorb the best teacher in the world's information will not get in if we're not addressing these underlying challenges. BVHM has been a community school offering food and counseling for a while now, but over the last couple of years, they realized it wasn't enough. We were seeing a ton of our families in shelters or homeless or in cars. And in fact, asking in one situation, like, can we just stay here tonight, please, in your building? Lack of affordable housing was the number one struggle for many families. One in five students in California have experienced homelessness. And Nick knows what that can mean for kids. Students without consistent housing are more likely to be chronically absent and less likely to complete high school. We know they're going to walk in the door without the basics handled, we know we're not going to be successful. Many of BVHM's Latino families only speak Spanish and didn't feel comfortable navigating San Francisco's complex homeless shelter system. But they did feel comfortable asking for help at the school. So Nick and others came up with an idea. What if we offered up our gym as an emergency shelter for students and families that don't have another option? It was an audacious idea one that not all BBHM families welcomed. 
Coming up, we'll dig into how this school dealt with those tensions. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. Hey. It's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. To sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. When Buena Vista Horace Mann first considered converting its gym into a homeless shelter, there was a lot of concern among families. A lot of, you know, pushback had to be sort of worked through. Latino and low-income families who previously hadn't spoken up much were actively pushing for the shelter. Meanwhile, more affluent, usually white families, were against it. Folks with privilege tend to have the control and the influence, and this kind of upset that balance. That power dynamic that existed reflects, you know, the the, the national power dynamic. Maria Rodriguez has three kids at BVHM. When she heard they might turn the gym into a shelter, she had reservations. Maria and other parents had these stereotypes about who is homeless. They worried that violent drug addicts would be staying at their children's school. Buena Vista staff hosted community meetings to talk through parents' concerns and clarify misunderstandings. We dedicated a lot of time to listening and to writing it all down. And we made a website where every question that was asked was answered in English and in Spanish. And at the end of this whole process, we had 150, 200 questions that were asked and answered and published. Families asked about safety, so the school decided to hire a security guard for the times that the shelter is open. They wanted to know about costs. BBHM assured them that the city would cover all expenses. The school wouldn't pay a dime. Entonces, después de que nos aclararon como las dudas, entonces yo en lo personal pues estaba de acuerdo porque sabía que iban a ser familias de la escuela y que realmente iba a haber como requisitos para poder estar aquí. Maria felt a lot better when she knew that the shelter would serve the school's families and that it would be vacated each morning, cleaned, and then open to children during the school day. Realmente nos enseñaron el lugar y cómo iba a estar y solo era para una noche y limpiarlo. Entonces ya es como que ya me sentí más más tranquila. After going through this exhaustive community process, BVHM decided to move forward with the shelter. Families must have a student enrolled in a San Francisco Unified School to stay there. We currently have it running right now. It is at capacity in our school from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. daily. 
20 families can stay there at a time. The shelter has been running for three years. A local housing organization handles sanitation and intake. It also opened up this whole world of resources that the city is organizing through their um, homelessness and supportive housing department. Families now have access to case managers who help them move from the shelter into long-term housing. We're partners in helping families navigate this really complicated housing situation. But all this success with the shelter didn't come easily. Some families left BBHM because they thought the shelter would hurt the school's reputation and lower enrollment. We did have a shift in our population. So we have less white students now than we did five years ago. And yet our, our, our enrollment has maintained and increased. For those who stayed, tough conversations about the shelter built a lot of trust with the school. Families felt the school staff listened to them and responded to their needs, even if it alienated more privileged members of the school community. Even though Maria hasn't needed to stay at the shelter herself, she says having that safety net makes her feel more invested in the school. Es una comunidad realmente unida, ¿verdad? Que ellos de alguna o de otra manera ven cómo apoyar a la familia. Pocas escuelas que, que tienen este apoyo eh, humanitario para las familias, porque realmente si hubiese eso en todas las escuelas, la educación y, y la humanidad y, y el apoyo sería diferente, ¿verdad? And so when I think about what a community school is, I don't think every community school needs a homeless shelter, right? Like I don't think that is what it is. Nick Chandler, the coordinator again. But I think that willingness to open that space and to let families dictate the needs of the community and use that information to advocate for resources, like that to me is what a community school is. So we've heard about how community schools can be game changers for students and their families. But what about teachers? Surveys of teachers across the country show they're under a lot of pressure and are burned out. Nearly half say they're thinking of leaving teaching altogether. Could the more holistic approach of a community school keep them in classrooms? Next, we're heading to Martin Luther King Jr. Academic Middle School. In the years before they became a community school, as many as two-thirds of their teachers would leave each year. Jennifer Founds is an eighth-grade English teacher there. I think as a teacher, you're really positioned to recognize a lot of needs of your students. You read assignments where it reveals the student is really struggling with their mental health, or you know that the kid is always coming in hungry. MLK hoped becoming a community school would offload some of that caregiving to partner nonprofits, freeing up teachers to do what they do best, teach. Our teachers don't need to be as much of a social worker anymore. Leslie Hu is MLK's community school coordinator. They don't need to have their own stash of socks in their closet to give to young people. They don't need to have like snacks to like actually feed young people because we have programs for that. She says after six years with the model, the school has over 50 partnerships with organizations that provide everything from therapy to groceries to an on-site dental clinic. We have a lot of partnerships that come in and really support inside the classrooms around instruction. Jennifer Founds, the English teacher, loves having more adults in the classroom helping out. 
like mentors from an organization called Huckleberry Youth Services, who supports students struggling academically. Huckleberry representatives actually come into the classroom as we're doing this project. They sit with the students and help those students get the supports they need. Those students can engage in the deeper thinking and the bigger work. In class, the Huckleberry mentors make sure the student understands the assignment and keeps them on task. Outside of school, they act as a case manager for the family, connecting them to services like counseling or language classes. All of a sudden, uh, students are getting better services, and also it's freeing up time and mental capacity for me to think about, okay, what are the best projects that are going to engage the students, and how can I provide differentiated curriculum to support a wide range of learners? That may sound like a small change, but it's huge. Before MLK became a community school, Jennifer could barely keep control of the classroom. Kids were running wild in the hallways. In the classroom, I had students literally climbing in and out of windows. And also just when it came to learning, I was begging students to write something down on a worksheet. I wasn't really able to get students to really engage with the material in a deep way. Now she's got the energy and time to come up with activities that are meaningful and relevant to her students. A powerful example of that in my own classroom would be an election night. So uh, on an election cycle year, my students had the task to increase voter knowledge and engagement. Each group had to research a local representative or ballot measure and present the information during a school-wide event. And then we were able to invite local candidates, local supervisors in, and a lot of them actually showed up to that election night. And so then it goes from just being like, oh, you did your report to like, oh, you're actually meeting people who could be your future representative. Real-world projects like this one have become the cornerstone of MLK's teaching philosophy. And they're possible because community partners are there to give students individualized support when they feel stuck or frustrated in class. Without that extra help, Jennifer says it would have been hard to give up so much control to her students. MLK is pleased with the results they've seen, including better teacher retention. Here's Leslie again. We saw our turnover rates like completely plummet. And students are making academic strides as well. We saw an increase of 9% in math and English language arts, which outpaced the rest of the district. And teachers like Jennifer know that their students are being taken care of, that they're coming to school ready to learn. When I first got to MLK, compared to where things are today, is a pretty dramatic difference. And... I think community schools are a central part of that. There's research backing up the community schools model. Nationally, students in these schools have better attendance, academic achievement, and graduation rates. And education policymakers are taking note. In May of 2022, California approved $4.1 billion for new and existing community schools in California. It's the first state to bet big on this model. There's a lot of buzz right now about California. This is Abe Fernandez again, the guy who advises community schools around the country. 
I'm really excited about what I hope California is going to teach us. That if you really invest in this work, you start to see impacts, you know, beyond just the struggling schools. Um, hopefully you get to a point where you see that this actually is a redefinition of what school should look like. So Nima, when might we see the effects of this funding? The money will roll out over the next seven years to more than 250 districts in California. In that time, we'll see more schools become resource hubs with stuff like clinics, mental health services, tutoring, and housing counselors on site. And hopefully that'll mean teachers can refocus on their own development and will have time to create engaging lessons. That's the goal. Also, it could help keep good teachers from leaving the profession altogether. And if this works out in California, there's a real opportunity for the community school model to spread across the country. It could change the way that public schools look. They could be hubs that serve children and their families holistically. I couldn't have produced this episode without help from Nicholas Chandler, Leslie Hu, Maria Rodriguez, Jennifer Founds, Tamar Sperlow, and their students. A big thanks to Carlos Cabrera Lomeli, Lisa Gardner, and the California Teachers Association. MindShift is produced by me, Nima Gobier. And me, Ki Sung. Our editors are Jessica Placek and Katrina Schwartz. Seth Samuel is our sound designer, Jen Chian is our head of podcasts, and Holly Kernan is KQD's chief content officer. If you love MindShift and enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. We really appreciate it. And if you want to share your thoughts on this episode, you can find us on Twitter at MindShiftKQED. Thank you for listening to Season 7 of the MindShift Podcast. That's it for these deep dive episodes. We're taking a little break. But we'll be back in a couple of months with new episodes featuring conversations about big ideas in education. Be sure to follow the show or subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.